On episode 21 of Flying Podcast today, I'm talking to Nick Forder. Uh, Nick is the transport curator at Manchester's Museum of Science and Industry. Nick has a superb insight into the history of Avro Aviation and how that was inextricably linked with the history of aviation in the Manchester area. The interview with Nick takes place in the Air and Space Hall, hence the sound of uh, happy children on school holidays in the background. As we wandered around the collection, Nick describes the Avro aeroplanes and the part they played in powered flight over the last century. After our museum tour, Nick introduced me to Peter Teagle, who now works as a volunteer at the museum. Peter is the ex-assistant chief designer at Avro Woodford. Peter worked on many aircraft at Avro and later BAE, including, as you'll hear, the BAE Advanced Turboprop Aircraft. Peter is now helping build a couple of replica AV-Row aircraft on site at the museum, and we had a brief chat towards the end of the podcast about uh, exactly what he and the team are up to. But first, let's hear from Nick Forder. If you'd like to see photos of the aircraft uh, that we mention, have a look at uh, the show notes under episode 21 on flyingpodcast.co.uk and I hope you'll find this podcast interview as interesting as I did. Hi Nick. Hello Steve, welcome to the Air and Space Gallery, the Museum of Science and Industry here in Manchester. Thank you. Uh, could you give us a, like a brief introduction as to the history of the collection of the museum? Well, the building we're in uh, is a Victorian Market Hall building. It was um, uh, completed about 1880, and originally it was just a canopy of an open-sided market, and it sold fruit and veg here. So the fruit and veg came from Liverpool on the railway across the road to here to be sold. And uh, around about 1910, they uh, completed the building, they put uh, walls in it, and it became the City Exhibition Hall. So a lot of people may remember coming here for Daily Mayor Ideal Home Exhibition. During the First World War, they trained troops here, and during World War II, Dunlop uh, operated it as a barrage balloon factory. The, uh, it was uh, opened, reopened as an air and space museum following refurbishment in March 1983 uh, as part of the regeneration of the Castlefield area. Castlefield in Manchester was Britain's first urban um, heritage park. And the idea of having two museums, the Air and Space Museum and the Museum of Science and Industry, sort of on adjacent sites, was part of, well, they were the flagships for the regeneration of this area. So what we have here now is a fantastic building on uh, a day when the sun shines, which unfortunately isn't quite as often as it should be in Manchester, uh, has a very, very sort of cathedral-like feel to it. Um, Having said that, it is not the most practical uh, of buildings for putting large aeroplanes in. And uh, that is a constant challenge as to how you get them in and out. And in some ways, the museum has been uh, a victim of its own success because uh, when the museum opened here in 1983, this was part of Manchester which people didn't come to. Now we have something like three-quarters of a million visitors a year. Uh, Liverpool Road the museum is main arterial route for South Manchester and it doesn't um, go down very well with the commuters when I decide that I need to reduce the traffic on Liverpool Road to single lane for seven hours because <laughs> um, we want to swap the Spitfires over <laughs> which, which we've done once and we will be doing again in, in a few months time right. but uh, uh, this year, one of the, um, uh, the things we've been commemorating the museum is the centenary of uh, the formation of uh, A.V. Rowe and company. Um, Avro uh, 
uh, as, as people generally know it as, was, was formed by uh, Elliot Verton Rowe and his brother Humphrey, uh, who both came from Patricroft in, in Salford. Uh, A.V. Rowe, in July 1909, had become, had become the first Englishman to design, build and fly an all-British aeroplane. Uh, this is the Rowe triplane. And we have um, two of those in the collections, which I'll uh, uh, mention about uh, later. Um, Humphrey Verdon Rowe uh, owned a webbing business in Ancoats in Brownsfield Mill, uh, next to what used to be the Ilva building, and I believe is now an oldie supermarket. Uh, and Humphrey had sp- spent some time trying to find funding for the Avro company, but realised that the only way he could... Um, get his brother's company off the ground, if you excuse the pun, uh, was to uh, become the financial director and run it himself. Mm-hmm. And he could only do that if the company was based in Manchester. And so the basement of Brownsfield Mill and Ancoats became the first Avro factory. Is that right? And they built aeroplanes there. This is right next to, next to the Rochdale um, Canal. Yeah. And this went on for a few years until they, they, they um, had uh, premises in other parts of, of, of Manchester. Um, so, I mean, that's uh, in some ways kind of the, the beginning of uh, aircraft manufacture uh, in Manchester. The other significant centenary that uh, we'll be celebrating in April is the first London to Manchester flight. Uh, this was on the 27th, 28th of April, 1910. Uh, the Daily Mail had uh, offered a £10,000 prize for the first person to fly within five miles of their London office, within five miles of their Manchester office. Uh, where the Northern Edition was produced. So this was a good bit of um, uh, newspaper publicity by the Daily Mail, whose owner believed that the best way to get a scoop on the story was to create the news yourself. Uh, when they offered this prize in 1906, uh, it um, caused consternation in the world generally. And in fact, Punch offered a million pounds for the first person to fly to the moon and back because <laughs> it was no more fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then, say, uh, uh, four, four years later, um, uh, a Frenchman, Louis Poulain, landed his aircraft uh, next, near uh, Burnage Station. There uh, is actually a road in Burnage now, isn't there? Poland Road? Well, yes, they've, um, uh, they've built a housing estate on, on the field which he landed. Yeah. And there is a blue plaque on the house which is approximately where he landed. Who was the guy that uh, didn't quite make it? Was it Claude Graham White? Yeah, well, Cla- Claude Graham White had made two attempts uh, uh, for the flight. And it's really quite interesting that, um, well, for a start, the newspaper regarded the things on very nationalist lines. Uh, and Claude Graham White, see the Englishman, um, uh, against the Frenchman. But also, Graham White in many ways got more out of the flight than Poulain did because Poulain didn't speak English and he was almost um, a mercenary. He, sort of, he turned up, made the flight, um, uh, got on the train which had followed him up from London at Burnage Station, came to Manchester. Uh, he landed in the early hours of the morning, to say, went to a hotel in Manchester, slept till midday, got up, had lunch with the Lord Mayor, got on the train, went back to London. And that's the last we saw of him. Yeah. Um, well, until um, 1950, when he came back to this country to uh, recreate the flight. And they flew from London to Manchester Airport in a, in a meteor. They flew him up, up here for, for that. 
but Graham White uh, used the publicity which came from the flight to promote his aviation career and uh, form uh, an aerodrome down at Hendon, uh, which is now the, uh, the base for uh, one of the RAF museums. Uh, so, so Graham White had more, much more of an understanding about publicity. the importance of the publicity on the side of this. But uh, as we're coming back to the museum, I mean, as we come in through the door, we're confronted by sort of the oldest and the newest aeroplanes that we have. And on one side, you have a, a replica of uh, A.V. Rose 1909 triplane. So this first all-British aeroplane to fly, though its first flight was uh, in the region of 100 feet and uh, about 15 feet off the ground. So it was very sort of marginal. But less than 50 years after this first aeroplane flew, the other uh, aeroplane by the entrance, the English Electric P1, um, built at Wharton in 1955, sits. And this is Britain's first truly supersonic aeroplane, so capable of supersonic uh, uh, speeds in level flight. And there's less than 50 years between them. It's amazing, isn't it? And so you can say on this, uh, which, you know, we have, in, in uh, 2003, we celebrated the centenary of uh, the Wright brothers' first recognised powered flight. This has happened within people's lifetime. Mm -hmm. People who were born in 1903 when the Wright brothers first flew were starting to draw their pensions when Armstrong walked on the moon. Yeah. And many of those people are, are still here today. Yeah. So you can almost talk about the things which happened in your father's lifetime, your grandfather's lifetime. Yeah. Things. Um, I mean, my grandfather uh, was, walked five miles in 1914 to see an aeroplane fly past. He, uh, my great-grandfather took him and his brother... Uh, to uh, to walk say walk down to this crossroads five miles away because they heard an aeroplane was yeah. landing somewhere up the road. Um, it was a mass spectacle in those days, wasn't it? If there was some, an air show, it'd be millions of people would be gathering. Well, this is again this is what um, uh, the Daily Mail promoted because the owner of the Daily Mail, Lord Northcliffe, uh, didn't think the government was taking enough notice of the development of aviation, and the security of this country at the time was based on the navy, and aeroplanes could just fly over ships. And uh, therefore, he did everything to promote the possibilities of aviation. And one of the things he did in August 1912, when the Royal Flying Corps were holding trials to design on aircraft designs um, to equip the Royal Flying Corps, he paid aviators to fly around the country. And this was the first time that people had seen aeroplanes. And of course, when an aeroplane uh, lands in your locality, all the local newspapers not only cover the fact that the aeroplane has come to visit, they also cover the trials for the Royal Flying Corps, yeah. and they raise all these issues. Uh, the downside of this is that they also had quite a lot of scaremongering, and people were um, regularly uh, citing German Zeppelins, uh, which they thought were uh, here taking secret photographs, or indeed in 1914 they thought there was a secret base for Zeppelins in the Lake District and they sent a pilot up there to go and look for it. <laughs> um, and you have the same sort of um, uh, interest and perception of anything inexplainable, in, uh, inexplicable has to be a German Zeppelin in the same way that people assume that everything inexplicable these days which flies has to be an alien spacecraft. Okay. But, it, but it is that, that sort of thing. Which is, uh, you know, it's really, really quite interesting, I find. But the, um, the triplane, you said it's uh, first all English. Yes. Is that because previously they were using was it French engines? Well, yes. Yeah, so the um, 
Certainly, uh, um, up until the early years of the First World War, um, most of the aero engines used in this country uh, were built in France or were licensed uh, versions of ones built in France. And the lack of uh, a good range of British aero engines uh, really sort of inhibited um, aircraft uh, uh, development of this country. Um, the Roe triplane is very interesting in that uh, also in that it's very much a product of a European approach to aviation. The reason the Wright brothers managed to fly in December 1903 is that they looked at the, at the problem of powered flight and they broke it down into a number of um, problems to be solved. So they wrote to the Smithsonian Institute in Washington and they asked for a reading list and they read everything that was available on the subject of flight. They then built um, gliders, uh, well, sorry, they built kites. Um, they then developed these into gliders, developed a control system, and then decided they needed an engine of a particular uh, horsepower uh, to get this aeroplane off the ground. None were available, so they designed and built one themselves. Uh, they needed to design propellers for this aircraft as well, so they built a wind tunnel and they tested various propeller designs. Yeah. The Europeans believed that the key to flying was uh, an extension of driving a car. They thought that all you needed to do was build an aeroplane which was light enough, had a powerful enough engine on it, you would then get the thing off the ground because it would move quickly enough forward to create enough lift to get off the ground, you then work out how to fly it. Uh, and that is the basis on which AVRO uh, uh, approached uh, designing of aircraft. And so the Roe triplane has a nine horsepower uh, motorcycle engine in it, Jap motorcycle engine, which was the most powerful engine that he could get at the time. And the aircraft is built as a triplane, so it has the maximum amount of wing area, but keeps the wing span down, so it's relatively easy to transport. Uh, it has a triplane tail as well, again, to, to increase uh, the lift. And it is made as light as possible. So uh, A.V. Rowe was a very keen cyclist, and he used, reused a lot of cycle technology in the design of the aircraft. So the undercarriage... Uh, it uh, um, consists of bicycle wheels and two sets of bicycle forks and the rigging system is based on bicycle spokes uh, and A.V. Rowe painted this and he made more money out of uh, the Avro strainer system based on bicycle spokes than he ever did making aeroplanes uh, the original aircraft was covered in butter paper which was muddled backed brown paper uh, varnished this was very light, very easy to repair but it's also the sort of thing that you put your finger through very easily. And when he took the aircraft to Blackpool in 1909 for Britain's first official air show, he had all sorts of problems because it rained, the, uh, the paper <laughs> covering got soggy, and the aeroplane didn't work. <laughs> uh, but, uh, I mean, this aeroplane is so light that uh, we have, in the past, uh, considered um, taking it to air shows but it's not an aeroplane that you can park outside because if you get a breath of wind and the thing flies away. Uh, when, uh, one of the things that we, uh, we did last year to um, celebrate the centenary of the road triplane is we built um, uh, a flying replica here of which we can go and have a look at uh, uh, talk at the moment. But one of the problems that we had with building that aircraft 
is that the original hadn't been built with any consideration of health and safety. And the fact it's so lightweight caused problems. Uh, the original aircraft, um, the structural integrity is so minimal that if you pull the wings up and down, you can see the whole fuselage is twisting. And therefore, with the replica, we had to beef it up and make it a lot stronger yeah. to stop doing it that, because otherwise we weren't going to be given a certificate for the thing to fly. I noticed on these wings they're hinged halfway along the wing. What's that for? Well, uh, basically the, uh, the three upper wing sections, uh, the three lower wing sections and the tailplane are all exactly the same size. They're almost like interchangeable. Right. Um, the aircraft uh, was completed and assembled in a railway arch, um, which was being used as a workshop. And so you had to be able to dismantle the aircraft to get it in and out. Uh, aircraft that AV Row designed after the triplane were all carefully designed to be dismantled, um, to be transported by rail in a thing called a theatre pantechnicum, which was a covered railway wagon. And this is because in 1910, when uh, they were taking aircraft to uh, the second Blackpool flying meeting, uh, smuts from the locomotive set fire to the aeroplane and, uh, uh, and completely destroyed the aeroplane through fire. A.V. Rose then entered into litigation against the railway company for the insurance value of the aircraft, of which the railway company infused, refused to pay this and would only pay the replacement costs for the materials. So henceforth, A.V. Rowe decided that all his aircraft would come to pieces and go in covered wagons to stop this happening again. Good idea. Uh, and so, again, one of the latest designs, the Avro F, the world's first enclosed um, uh, cabin monoplane, which we're building a replica of here uh, at the moment as well, which we'll have a look at in a moment, is de was designed so the fuselage split in half, again, so it would go into one of these pantechnicons. Okay. The Avro 504K was A.V. Rowe's perfect aeroplane. Um, it had uh, um, top speed about 80 miles an hour, and uh, A.V. Rowe hoped that uh, he might get um, orders to build maybe six of them and in the end something over 10,000 504s were built. We don't know the exact number because um, uh, the Russians copied it and produced a metric version called the Polycarpov U1 and we're not quite sure how many of those were built. Um, this aircraft became so popular uh, because it was very versatile um, the Royal Flying Corps and the Royal Naval Air Service, the forerunners of the RAF, uh, bought a number of them. And in fact, the first evidence that the Germans had that uh, there were British troops in France uh, in 1914 was after an Avro 504 had been brought down. And it was only when they inspected the uniforms of the crew that they realised there were British troops in France. From those early days being used basically as a reconnaissance aircraft, uh, it was then modified for use as a long-range bomber, and uh, aircraft flew from Belfort in France to bomb the Zeppelin sheds at Friedrichshafen. Um, it was used as an Zeppelin fighter, and from 1917 onwards, it became the, uh, uh, the Royal Flying Corps, later the RAF's standard training aeroplane. When the RAF uh, required a replacement uh, training aircraft in the late 20s, they ordered uh, more 504s, but slightly advanced with radial engines rather than rotary engines. 
the rotary engine is an important thing to touch upon because this in many ways was the world's first practical aero engine in that it had an exceptionally good power to weight ratio so the, uh, the early rotary engines, the, uh, the Noma Megas, would produce 50 horsepower for an engine that weighed about 45 kilograms. The reason it was so light is that it was air-cooled and it had a total loss lubrication system. Uh, so basically you, you squirted the, uh, the fuel and oil mixture into the crankcase and this was forced into the cylinders by the fact the whole engine revolved with the propeller. So this was great in terms of say, power to weight ratio, but it also meant that all the uh, unburnt petrol and the lubricant came out of the exhaust valves. And so this would then cover the pilot and any crew with a, a film of, uh, of oil. And as, as anybody who knows about the properties of castor oil will tell you that it's exceptionally good laxative. <laughs> it's the sort of thing you used to give school children yeah, yeah. at the time. Uh, to improve bowel movements and such like. So there were problems about people getting absolutely drenched in castor oil. So when uh, uh, the First World War ended and uh, a lot of these aircraft were available as surplus aircraft and you could buy an XRAF uh, 504 for about 50 quid in 1919 which meant it was exceptionally good for the people who learned to fly during the war who wanted to own their own aeroplanes and it was also exceptionally good for people who wanted to take up joyriding, uh, joyriding companies or indeed airlines. And Avro 504s were used on Britain's first scheduled airline, which started in May 1919, and flew people from Blackpool to uh, Manchester, um, the aerodrome being Alexandra Park, Huff End Fields next to Princess Parkway, uh, and to Southport. The idea of an airline had actually been... Um, uh, it was a means to an end. Avro, the Avro Transport Company that operated the airline, weren't particularly interested in an airline, but they wanted to give joy rides off Blackpool and Southport Beach. Um, the local authority at Blackpool wanted uh, an airline which linked them from Manchester, and the only way that they would allow joy riding off the beach is if the Avro Transport Company set up an airline. Uh, the, uh, the airline ran for about six months, and then in 1920, um, Blackpool Council weren't so prescriptive and allowed joyriding off the beach. And the Avro Transport Company then concentrated on giving joyrides to people uh, at various coastal resorts uh, around the country. But anyway, let's say the, uh, the fact that surplus 504s were very cheap uh, in 1920 was very good for the stimulus of civil aviation like that, but very bad for the company. Whereas you could buy a, uh, a used 504 for about 50 quid and a completely unused one for about 150, in 1919 it was costing Avro £400 to build the airframe, plus the cost of the engine, which would be another £400. So they would have to sell the aeroplane at over £800 to make a profit, and there was no market for it at all. And that is why... Um, Immediately after the First World War, 1919-1920, the Avro factories were used to uh, produce whatever could keep the factory in, in business. So they made uh, rocking horses, they made dolls' houses, they made billiard tables. Really? And there are some billiard tables with nice Avro logos on them. Yeah. Um, 
1921, a corner of the Avro factory at Newton Heath was handed over to Harper, um, leased to them, and they built three-wheel runabouts, uh, of which we have one in the collection. Um, and in 1921, there was uh, a shares exchange with Crosley Motors, who had built um, DH9 bombers under licence at Heaton Chapel during the First World War, uh, and therefore knew the similarity of skills between the motor industry and the car industry. And they took over control of, uh, uh, of Avro and initially used the company to build car bodies. A few years later, by 1928, the situation had changed in that the RAF were ordering new uh, trainers, which were Avro 504Ns, and also um, there was a new market, which were government-subsidised flying clubs uh, from 1925, and, uh, and also the owner pilots wanted aircraft which were a lot easier to maintain and operate than 504s. They wanted aircraft which didn't have uh, rotary engines which needed to be stripped down and rebuilt after every 10 hours of running and they didn't want to turn up at their friends' country houses for the weekend uh, drenched in castor oil and desperate for the toilet. So people like Geoffrey de Havilland designed the DH-60 Malt for this market and uh, Avro's designed the Avian in 1928 for this market. And we have an Avro Avian here, which is one of only two aircraft of this type in the country, and this is the only one on public display. This aircraft was built at Newton Heath in 1928, and comparing it to the 504, uh, you can see um, how this has been designed by Roy Chadwick, uh, the, uh, the Avro chief designer who went on to design the Lancaster, uh, another famous Avro aircraft, for a particular market. So it's an aircraft with the same sort of performance as the 504, but it's smaller, more compact. It has a conventional... Uh, inline engine with a sump, so no castor oil all over the place. Uh, it has a luggage uh, compartment in it, so you can take an overnight bag or a picnic hamper. The wings fold, so you can uh, park it in a garage next to your car and a stable next to your horses and tow it down to the flying ground. This particular aircraft has a very uh, uh, interesting history. Uh, this was entered into the light aircraft trials at Orly in France in 1928 and flown by um, uh, Lady Heath, uh, who was a very um, important uh, woman aviator who uh, had championed the inclusion of women's events in the Olympics and then was quite determined... Uh, well, she was also the first woman to hold a commercial pilot's licence, uh, but she also believed that um, uh, women could fly aeroplanes and remain glamorous and, rem and be very feminine. And so she didn't like this idea of uh, uh, women having to don flying clothing and being drenched in oil. And she flew this aeroplane wearing a cocktail dress and high heels. Uh, she's also the first person to fly from uh, Cape Town to London. When she came into land at uh, Croydon Airport, which was then uh, London Airport, she knew the press would be waiting for her, so she put on a new pair of silk stockings before she came into land, so she looked her best. Uh, the longest part of her flight from uh, Cape Town to Croydon 
was along the Nile and she knew that this would be fairly uneventful. So she flew along the Nile reading a paperback, uh, munching a box of chocolates. (laughs) Avril obviously used her to promote the aircraft quite well. Uh, Her avian, the one that she'd used for the Cape Town to Croydon flight, was sold to uh, Amelia Earhart in the States, the first woman to fly across the Atlantic, um, because Earhart was so inspired by Lady Heath's flights. This, this aircraft was then uh, sold to the, Liverpool, sorry, the Merseyside and District Flying Club in uh, 1929 as one of four avians um, they had when they set up their flying club at um, Hooton Park near Ellesmere Port. It was later sold to Gyro Aviation at Southport and used to give joyrides off Southport Beach. So it's an aircraft which not only was built locally but has a very important local history. So Crosley Motors, um, having um, uh, gained control of Avro in 1921, by 1928 were in serious financial difficulties. And this is because Crosley Motors had never really decided what market they were um, building and selling cars to. So on the one hand, they were trying to compete with Daimler and Rolls-Royce, and on the other, they were trying to compete with Ford and uh, Alston for the mass car market and they never really succeeded in either. So we have examples of crossing cars here in the museum. We have a 1924 Shelsley, which was Crosley's idea of a family saloon. This cost the same amount of money as a semi-detached house in suburban Manchester. Um, So they didn't sell an awful lot of them. The last type of car they built, which was the Regis, built in 1935, uh, they did all they could to uh, reduce the price. And so the build quality, it doesn't exist in this car. The engine was badged across the engine, but actually it was a Coventry Climax engine. Uh, and say so very much built to, um, to a budget. The base model of this car introduced in 1935 was £300. Well, in, in 1935, you could buy a house for £100. So this was three times the price of a small terrace cottage. Um, And this is why, by 1928, with the uh, um, Avro re-establishing itself as an aircraft manufacturer, because it had contracts for new trainers for the RAF and people were buying the Avians, Crosley Motors sold Avro at an enormous profit uh, to uh, John Davenport Sidley uh, from Altrigham, who owned Armstrong Sidley, uh, Armstrong Sidley Aero Engines, Armstrong Sidley Cars, and Armstrong Whitworth Aircraft. Uh, and at that point, uh, Avro then became part of his empire. And when uh, Sidley retired in 1936, the, uh, his company passed to the ownership of uh, Tommy Sopworth, uh, who ran uh, Hawker which had been topless during the First World War. And this is the beginning of the Hawker Siddeley Empire, which then later on became British Aerospace and then BAE Systems. At this time, in the late 20s, uh, A.V. Rowe, having lost control of the company, first to Crosley Motors, and then uh, with the sale to Siddeley's coming uh, into view, decided that um, he would sell his shares and moved down uh, south 
he didn't like Manchester because it rained too much and he ha- actually had made attempts to move the Avro factory down uh, to uh, Hamble uh, near Southampton uh, during the First World War but uh, had decided against it because it would have disrupted production and they were making too much money uh, producing 504s to uh, the government contract to lose that. Uh, so anyway, he sold his shares and bought into Saunders on the Isle of Wight uh, and the resulting company being Saunders Row. So from 1928 onwards, the Row family does, has no direct contact with Avro at all. But it's still very much involved in the aircraft industry because Saunders Row went on to build the Princess flying boat um, and the SRA-1, which was the world's first jet flying boat fighter, powered by engines made by Metrovix and Trafford Park, incidentally, and, uh, and lots of other uh, aeroplanes. Avro, meanwhile, um, as it got into the 1930s, became very much involved in uh, rearmament. It designed and built the Avro Anson, which was the first cabin monoplane with a retractable undercarriage used by the RAF, and also designed uh, the Avro Manchester heavy bomber. This aircraft was not a particular success. Uh, the airframe was over design weight. The engines, the Rolls Royce Vultures, were uh, underdeveloped. But Roy Chadwick, the chief designer, came up with the idea of replacing the centre extension of the Manchester to turn it from a twin-engine bomber into a four-engine bomber and fit four Rolls-Royce Merlin engines into it, and the result was the Lancaster. Now we're talking. Yeah. Which, of course, became the backbone of um, the RAF Bomber Command and the strategic bombing campaign during World War II. It also marks the movement into the creation of another family of Avro aeroplanes, because which starts with the Manchester, fit it with four engines, it becomes the Lancaster, develop a square a fuselage for it, it becomes the York airliner, develop it a bit further and it becomes the Lincoln, modify the, uh, uh, the fuselage, develop the wings a bit further, fit Rolls-Royce Griffin engines on it and it becomes the Shackleton, put a different fuselage on it and it becomes the Tudor airliner. Very much evolution rather, rather than uh, 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 revolution. Unfortunately, uh, there are no Avro Manchesters surviving in the world today. There are a few Lancasters, but uh, the way that we represent the Lancaster story in the museum is with the Avro Shackleton. Uh, the aircraft we have here, WR960, is an eight-squadron aircraft and uh, was originally built as a maritime reconnaissance aircraft uh, at Chatterton um, in 1955, uh, completed at, uh, at Woodford, test flown there. Uh, maritime reconnaissance aircraft, uh, anti-submarine hunter, etc. And later converted to be uh, an airborne early warning aeroplane. Uh, so this aircraft was capable of staying airborne for up to 24 hours without flight refuelling and in its latter days operated from uh, Lossiemouth in Scotland and was used to pick up aircraft invading British airspace, typically Russian long-range reconnaissance aircraft and would then vector RAF interceptors to chase the Russians away. So these interceptors would have been Lightnings initially uh, built at Wharton, uh, then Phantoms uh, and then laterally Tornadoes. This aircraft 
which was only designed as a stopgap at an airborne early warning aircraft, ended up being Britain's first line of defence until the uh, mid-1990s, which is truly fantastic for an aircraft which has its origins in a World War II aircraft and first flew in 1949. The Shackleton that we have in the museum, uh, WR960, is named Dougal after the Magic Roundabout character. And this is because the conversion aircraft that uh, 8th Squadron had, had, uh, well, the Shackleton caused its own problems for people converting to the type because it has a tailwheel. And uh, this was quite unusual for RAF aircraft. And in fact, people who now, um, uh, RAF pilots who now fly for the Battle of Britain Memorial flight, fly Lancaster Spitfires, do conversion training on chipmunks that they have successfully for uh, uh, tail dragger aeroplanes. And that is because most aeroplanes these days has a nose wheel and that's a lot easier to land. So 8th Squadron had a conversion trainer. Now this aircraft uh, was quite difficult to land for people who were not used to tail dragger aeroplanes. And the landings tend to be, tended to be arrivals rather than proper landings. And therefore you know, uh, a typical landing would cause the aircraft to bounce up and down the runway until the pilot finally got it to stay down. And so the aircraft was then nicknamed Zebedee, which of course has a big spring which bounced us. And because of that, then all the eight squadron aircraft were named after characters from the Magic Roundabout or the Herb Garden. Yeah. So there's also Ermintrude and Mr. Rusty, etc. This Shackleton is about 95% complete and is the most complete, best preserved Shackleton in the world. Uh, and so, quite fittingly, it is the centrepiece of the collections here. The reason that WR960 was converted from a maritime reconnaissance aircraft to an airborne early warning aircraft is uh, due to the retirement of Britain's uh, last proper aircraft carrier. This was Ark Royal. Ark Royal operated aircraft called Gannets, uh, some of which were made in Heaton Chapel by uh, Fairies, um, which were fitted with a radar system. This was a 1942 American system, which had previously been fitted to um, Avengers, Grumman Avengers, and then um, uh, Sky Raiders, Douglas Sky Raiders. When Ark Royal was uh, about to be decommissioned, it was fairly obvious that the replacement carriers uh, were were incapable of carrying fixed wing aircraft. These replacement carriers were technically known as anti-submarine through-deck cruisers, and they were designed uh, exclusively to operate helicopters. This is because nobody had ever thought about the idea of fitting, of operating a Harrier from uh, an aircraft carrier at the time. So the decision was made that the airborne warning uh, capability would then go to land-based RAF aircraft. And so a version of the Nimrod maritime reconnaissance aircraft, itself a development of the Comet airliner, was developed to fulfil this role. And GEC were given the, uh, the role of developing the radar for it. The airborne early warning Nimrod was quite interesting in that it had one radar scanner in the nose and one radar scanner in the tail. Unlike the American AWACS aircraft that has one big radar scanner um, uh, on top of the fuselage. And this, the Nimrod design, was because um, the AWACS has a problem about locating aircraft below the aircraft itself because 
the fuselage and the wings of the AWACS get in the way of the radar scanner. So the idea of the Nimrod was that it would get around this problem. But the thing with the Nimrod was that the aircraft was of a limited size and they decided to base uh, the design on the Nimrod because it had a weapons bay and they thought it was important that the aircraft should be capable of carrying weapons. Um, but it was of a finite size and the electronics they were putting in it were also quite large because this was before the development of microprocessors etc that we have today. So the real problem was that uh, it was a constant battle to put too many electronics or too bulky electronics in quite a small aeroplane. The RAF revised the specification of the aircraft uh, somewhat and every time that this was revised there were additional problems and basically they, could, they couldn't get the radar system to do the job properly. It was explained to me in terms of um, what the radar could pick up could be the conning tower of a Russian or any other submarine just off the coast or equally could be a transit van driven by somebody off the coast road and the radar couldn't tell the difference between the two. Now, in many ways, that's kind of good for the sub-commander, but not too good for the van driver who's, who's having missiles and fighters directed towards him. So in a typical British way, we spent millions and millions of pounds on it, gave up as a bad job, and then bought American. Uh, and so 8 Squadron now operates the AWACS to do this, this job. In many ways, this was probably the right decision because we are part of NATO, and NATO uses the AWACS for airborne early warning and therefore having compatible systems was probably a, a good idea. In the meantime we needed an aircraft to do this job and what uh, happened the radar system say, which was from the Gannets which was a 1942 valve system and already had been fitted to two previous sorts of aircraft was fitted on the nose of the Shackletons as a stopgap measure. They chose the, uh, the Shackletons with uh, tail wheels, which weren't the newest of the Shackletons, the MR3 Shackleton having a, a nose wheel, but uh, the nose wheel Shackletons didn't have enough room to fit the radome because they had the nose wheel in the way. And also the, uh, the RAF MR3 Shackletons had been fitted with two Viper jet engines uh, for using crews, etc., and these had seriously uh, advanced the uh, fatigue damage to the airframe. In, in a simple sense, they were shaking the airframes to pieces, and therefore the aircraft didn't have uh, enough usable life. So the MR, a small number of MR2s were converted to AEW aircraft so, and remained in service until the mid-90s. After the, uh, the Lancaster probably the most famous uh, Avro design is the Vulcan. Uh, at the moment, we don't have a Vulcan in the collections uh, on display here. I say at the moment because we are in the process of uh, uh, redesigning a new air and space gallery, and who's to say what will be in there. But we do have other representations of the Vulcan in the collections. We do have the nose of um, Vulcan B2 uh, XM602, uh, which is in, in store, the museum at the moment. Uh, but on display, we have an Avro 707A. Because the Vulcan 
with its triangular delta wing shape was such a revolutionary design. The suspicion was that uh, there would be significant problems with the development of the aircraft and also significant problems in training people to fly it. Therefore, a number of third-scale uh, Vulcans were designed and built by Avro to test out various design features and also to look about uh, training crew. And what we have in the collections is the second Avro 707A. And this is particularly interesting because it has the original Vulcan wing shape. The Vulcan was designed for this triangular wing shape, which on later models, the, uh, the developed B1A and the B2, they fitted a kink to the leading edge uh, to improve the handling, uh, which meant it was no longer a true triangular shape. The 707 that we have here has that original wing shape. Um, and almost above it, we have one of the wind tunnel models of an Avro Vulcan K2, retired from uh, um, the BAE Systems Factory at Woodford, which was used for the wind tunnel test to develop the, uh, the Vulcan K2 tanker. Uh, and you can see the, the skip, as it was known, fitted to the rear fuselage, which uh, held the flight uh, refueling um, drum. In actual fact, the Vulcan prototype worked a lot better than anybody thought it would do, and so anticipated problems of air intakes, uh, etc., which led to the 707B being designed with a dorsal intake, were unnecessary, and it also proved to be a relatively easy aeroplane to fly, and therefore the Avro 707C side-by-side uh, -side trainer was never put into production. The original idea was that every Vulcan squadron would have a 707C uh, conversion trainer. Uh, so as it was, they only built one, and like all the 707s, it was used for other research and development work, uh, most of which wasn't actually related to the Vulcan. Right, so sort of bringing us back to the beginning, uh, this is the uh, 1909 Rowe triplane replica um, that was built last year to commemorate Avia Rowe's first flight. Unfortunately, we have yet to get it off the ground, and uh, following flight, extensive flight tests at uh, Woodvale last year, it's come back to the museum for further modifications. In many ways, this means that we're following in A.V. Rowe's footsteps, because what he did with the original was very much on trial and error, and if things didn't work, uh, he went back to the drawing board, tried to lighten the aircraft a bit, tried to get more power out of the engine, and also uh, try different propellers and a different power transmission. So the sort of things that we're going to be looking at on, on this aircraft before we make uh, another attempt to get it off the ground later this year are uh, we're going to uh, retune the engine. The engine is uh, a Jap engine of slightly newer vintage than uh, the original. We believe that this one was, was made in 1912. Bench tests we did at the Anson Museum at Poynton indicate that we're getting about 11 horsepower out of it. Tests we did uh, when it was fitted to the aircraft suggest that we were getting more like 7 horsepower out of it, so therefore there is quite a lot of tuning work that needs to be done, as every extra bit of horsepower we get out of it is 
uh, terribly important. And we're also going to be building the third propeller to be fitted to this aircraft, uh, which will be of greater efficiency. And the third thing we're going to look at is the power transmission. You can see in the aircraft at the moment that it has belt drive, which goes to a pulley. We're going to replace this belt drive with uh, chain drive, so we can then put a sprocket on it, and this will improve the, um, the efficiency of the engine. Well, uh, it will turn the propeller around more times for every time the engine uh, brews. So, AV Road did exactly the same thing. We're being supported in this project by Reynolds Chains, who as far as we know, provided AV Rove with a chain set for his original triplane. Yeah, so it's very good. In fact, Reynolds, Reynolds chains are still producing uh, chain for the aerospace industry 100 years after the event, um, which is quite bizarre when you think of things like um, the chains which control the, the control runs for Harry's, etc., are all made in Manchester. And, and that's all run by bicycle chain, if you like, for want of a better word. So, uh, so A.V. Rowe's ideas about using bicycle technology in aeroplanes still, still holds true. So that brings us nicely full circle, as you say? Yeah, that's, uh, that's very much. And you hope to fly this 2010? Yes. Um, yes. The, uh, the schedule at the moment would suggest everything going well. The aircraft should be airborne to mark the 101st anniversary. So that, that will be July if everything goes well. But, uh, At Woodvale, Southport. Hopefully we're going back to Woodvale. But, um, it, it's, in many ways, it's, uh, it's a pity that um, we can't conduct the flight trials somewhere where uh, it would be more visible to the public. But uh, there are practical issues about operating an aircraft like this. Yes. Um, and, uh, I mean, I would be quite happy to go to Manchester Airport to do it. But you can imagine the, uh, the consequences of trying to take off an aeroplane like this where you only had jet airliners taking off over it. Yeah. The downwash from the jet airliner would tip this thing on its side. And uh, you can't be having aeroplanes like this um, blocking up runways if something went wrong and you want to take an aeroplane off in a, in a hurry. So Barton was another possibility, but really it's probably better having a tarmac runway. And having seen the, uh, the original field at Lee Marshes down in Walthamstow, where A.V. Rowe made, his, uh, uh, made the flights of the original aircraft, I've been very surprised he got the thing off the ground because the ground is so uneven. But it's, uh, I feel like that at Barton sometimes. Well, yes, well, well that's another story about why, uh, why Barton is at Barton. <laughs> but that's, um, yeah, I mean, the... Uh, the original hopes for Manchester had been that um, the aircraft at Sefton's Park, at Alexandra Park, at Huff End Fields, um, would become Manchester's first airport. But that had been acquired by the government from Lord Edgerton of Tatton on the understanding that uh, it would um, be used for military purposes until the end of the war, end of the First World War, this is, and then the site would be cleared by, within five years after that. And the building of the, uh, the railway line, the prospect of Princess Parkway, and the desire of um, the Edgertons for the land to be used for housing meant that this wasn't practical. And uh, therefore, the City Council looked for alternative sites for an airport, and suddenly there was a great need to uh, select a site very quickly because we'd heard that Hull 
were also going to have an airport. And Manchester was quite desperate that Manchester should have Britain's first licensed uh, municipal airport. And so somebody said, hang on a minute, uh, we own a lot of land at Barton, which isn't being used for anything. And actually the land at Barton was being used by the city refuse department. And there's a reason that they had it there, because the land, of course, is on Chat Moss. And if anybody in the city council had been aware of their history and had known the problems that the Stevensons had in 1830 building the Liverpool National Railway over Chat Moss, would have not put an air, airfield there at all. Yeah. But anyway, they decided that Barton was going to be the site for, for uh, Manchester Airport because it was available and it was cheap. There was a need to uh, uh, have a temporary airport uh, to beat Hull and therefore Rackhouse Farm at Withenshaw was chosen for this. And this was basically four fields and a barn in the middle which was used uh, as a hangar. So that was Manchester's first airport, albeit a temporary one, and then they went to Barton. Now, the really important thing for uh, airline services for Manchester was uh, an airline service into Europe. And the only route uh, on which Manchester could compete with Croydon Airport, uh, the only route into Europe, was to Holland, uh, uh, to Schiphol, uh, Amsterdam. And therefore, encouraging KLM to open a service between Amsterdam and Manchester was fundamentally important. Manchester Airport at Barton encouraged KLM to investigate Barton as a potential airport for use by KLM. And KLM sent uh, a former white Russian uh, chief test pilot, chief pilot called Shmurnov, no connection with the vodka, but uh, called Shmurnov, to come to Barton to test out the runway. So he came in his Fokker airliner and he made a number of takeoffs and landings. And he, his uh, assessment was that the runway at Barton was too short for the operation of an average KLM airline pilot in a, a, a Fokker airliner full of passengers. And he said that uh, you would have to make the runway longer. Well, of course, to make the runway longer it meant that you would have to impinge more onto Chat Moss. And Barton had problems with flooding then, and still, I understand, has problems with flooding now. Oh, yes. And it would have been fundamentally, yeah, well, it would have been so incredibly expensive to uh, ex expand the runway. So they decided that it would be much better to look for an alternative site. And that's why they chose Runway, which opened in 1938 as Manchester's airport, and that's why Manchester Airport is where it is. Following on from our tour of the Air and Space Hall, Nick now took me up onto one of the large balcony areas to meet uh, Peter Teagle and the team building the replica Type F Avro monoplane. If you'd like to uh, have a look at photos of the aircraft and indeed of Peter and Nick themselves, have a look at uh, the show notes on flyingpodcast.co.uk. I'm with uh, Peter Teagle now, who is, uh, are you heading up the team here, building a replica uh, Type F Avro? Yes, for my sins, I, I seem to be in charge, yeah. Uh, and uh, we're hoping to build this replica of the Type F, which was first made in originally in 1912, and uh, we even hope to have the original engine that was fitted. Yeah. Uh, but we haven't managed to get it from the Science Museum yet. We're working on it. <laughs> We're working on it. But here, here's a photograph of it. And as you can see, it's a very neat machine. 
and the great thing about it is it was the very first totally enclosed monoplane where the pilot sat inside and didn't have to wear goggles and a big leather coat to keep him warm in the uh, in the freezing atmosphere of flight so um, we've made the wings already and uh, we're going to cover them shortly uh, Nick has um, ordered the fabric and uh, Do you use a modern fabric is it kicking well, we're, go- we're going to use a modern fabric because really it's going to be in the museum for 50 or 100 years long after we're gone and we don't want to have to recover it once every 10 or 20 years if you look at the old machine down there the Abro 504 yep. it's, it, it could really do with recovering you know the cotton fabrics that were originally used only last for about 10 years at the most even in the benign conditions of the museum outside they only last about 5 years you know so um we're going to cover it with a modern heat shrink fabric which will um, last a lot longer um, and we hope to uh, disguise this fact by uh, making it look like the original of course which we have these excellent photographs of when was the original built Peter? 1912 and uh, was it quite advanced for its day? it was very advanced for its day um, like many aeroplanes of its day, it only lasted about six months before it was crashed, of course. Yeah. And um, the guy who crashed it took the engine away and years later built another aeroplane. The engine itself has been in, I think, a total of four aeroplanes, all told, and uh, at least. And uh, hopefully it'll go in a fifth if we can get hold of it and uh, fasten it on the front of our replica. Let's, let's move around and look at the replica. Quite a team have worked on this, so about three people. And uh, it's nearly finished, and it's looking quite good. Next is the fuselage. That's made out of ash, straight-grained ash, which is a very good material, uh, reasonably lightweight, and readily available today so we we've used that probably Elliot would have gone to a local timber yard and bought deal yeah um he probably selected it with care to make sure there weren't any knots in it and that sort of thing much as we have done we've simplified the build a little bit um because it's only a static display model um but when it's fully covered of course you won't see all of the uh, slightly different details but nonetheless by accurately measuring the photograph we've managed to get the whole shape and you see it before you the next job we've got is to pull the nose together and that piece of plywood there is going to be the nose bulkhead to come to about that position there and that piece of plywood will tie these bits together here and then we'll start to fill in the rest of the structure around the cabin Uh, we have an apprentice Paul who's been given the job of making a mock-up of the pilot's seat so that we can sit that inside and position it with the aid of the photographs and get it just right for somebody to sit in Um, 
the only curious thing is there are no doors on the side you have a trap door in the roof and the pilot has to climb up on top of the fuselage and drop in through the through the skylight in effect uh, which, which is probably why it uh, it didn't become uh, fashionable to have enclosed monoplanes for a long time after this I should think it it's probably another 20 years from 1912 before people started having enclosed aeroplanes. What was uh, the, uh, the rationale that uh, A.B. Rowe was uh, working towards here? Well, I think he was trying to make a very small single-seat aeroplane uh, with the minimum horsepower engine. It was only 35 horsepower, this five-cylinder radial engine. Uh, designed by an Italian gentleman called Viali. Um, it, it, the engine was a little weak. Uh, it said that after about half an hour's running, it used to get very tired indeed and give up. So um, you didn't go for a long flight in the aeroplane. Uh, 20 minutes was quite long enough. But nonetheless, in its day, it was a tremendous advance. I mean... The first real flights had only started in 1903, you know, and this is only a few years later, you've got a streamlined monoplane. monoplane. So it was a fantastic achievement in its day. So what's your history, piece? How come you've come to be uh, volunteering here at the museum, building replica aircraft? Well, uh, of course, I spent my life uh, working at what was originally Avros and in the end became BAE, uh, ending up... Uh, uh, designing the ATP, the development of the 748 airliner with more modern fuel-efficient engines and That's the advanced turboprop. The advanced turboprop, yes. Um, now I suppose I should refer to it as the antique turboprop because it's so old. But uh, even so, it's some of them are still flying today, and. Uh, Yes, it has that six-bladed propeller, which the reason for that is to reduce the noise from the propeller. Propellers are very good noise generators, Mm -hmm. and the more blades you have, the the less noise. So that's why it's got six. And as such, it made a big reduction in the cabin noise. You could talk to somebody, just as we're talking now, instead of having to shout at the top of your voice, as you did in the older... Uh, prop-driven aeroplane. I believe you have a, an interesting story about the design. Was it the fin of the, the plane? Oh, well, <laughs> this is a story I love telling. It, uh, we, we, The marketing people uh, of the firm uh, leaned on us to put a swept fin. The original had an old-fashioned-looking fin, the sort of thing you saw on a 1950s airliner. Like a bike Oh, that sort of thing, yes, exactly. And they wanted a swept fin to make it look up to date. So the definition of a swept fin is a bit difficult. So I had the office draw fins of varying angles and shape and touted these around interested parties in the firm. You're doing your own and, market and research. Right? I was doing my market research in the firm, exactly. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you can guess what happened. When all the boats came in, they were equal, 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 equal for four different sorts of fins. I thought, how on earth can I get out of this? Uh, So I 
I took them all, I had them all put on one page. I took it home to the wife and said, which one do you like, dear? <laughs> and she said, what a silly question. <laughs> uh, that one. <laughs> so I went back to work and said, uh, the, votes, the votes are in favour of having that one. And that's what it's got. Brilliant. And yeah. uh, it looks all right. That's what market research should be, isn't it? That's what market research is good for, yes. Yeah. Uh, in the end, everybody believed that there was a consensus of views that supported that. And nobody's argued since, so... Yeah, as long as the wife's I, happy. I'm happy. If you ask the wife, she'll deny she had anything to do <laughs> with it. But uh, that's what you expect, I suppose. Brilliant. Thank you very much, that okay. Peter. <laughs> Thanks to Nick Forder there and Peter Teagle at the Museum of Science and Industry. A fascinating interview, I'm sure you'll agree. Uh, if you're ever in the area, I strongly recommend a visit. And best of all, entry to the museum is absolutely free. Their web address, if you like more details, is www.mosi.org.uk. That's www.mosi.org.uk. The Ernest Peter Collection is well worth a visit, but there's a whole lot more to look at if you're interested in, in our uh, industrial heritage. Don't forget you can follow me on Twitter by searching for Flying Podcast. That's all one word on Twitter. And if you'd like to support Flying Podcast, please click through to Amazon from the website flyingpodcast.co.uk. Anything you buy on there will generate a small amount of cash and that will help me pay for hosting fees and producing more episodes. Well, that's it for episode 21. If you have any comments, suggestions for future episodes, or as usual, if you'd like to take part, you can email me on steve at flyingpodcast.co.uk. Thanks for listening. I'll speak to you again soon.